This episode of the Book of Very, Very Bad Things podcast has been brought to you by our sponsors at Sweet Cheetah Publicity. Sweet Cheetah is a PR collective that values people over profit. They put a different spin on public relations by working primarily with friends and using all profits to aid charitable organizations. With a roster that includes Jawbox, The New Amsterdam's, Brainiac, Get Some, Funeral Date, Damien Dunn, and many more artists, record labels, and podcasts. Sweet Cheetah. That's a great PR cohort. You can find them on social media by simply searching Sweet Cheetah PR, and they'll be there. He's been Tim. I've been Peter. And Sweet Cheetah has been beautiful. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Book of Very, Very Bad Things podcast. I'm your host, Peter, and I am still here. We're back. We're back for another couple of weeks, and then we go on another break. Sad to say, uh, we are at the tail end of book two. I can't wait for you to hear what we have coming in the next year. It has been two years, guys. We've been doing this a long time. And I'm so happy to have the likes of Dave Clifford to bring us to the end, or near end, of this round. Folks, Dave Clifford has been making music for a very long time. From the groups again, Jail Weddings, Marriages, Red Sparrows, Slaves, Taro Bolero, Lion Fever, The VSS, and Pleasure Forever. The VSS is the first time. Dave came into my consciousness. My old band played with them at a record store forever ago. The VSS split, and three of the four members formed the group Pleasure Forever who got signed to Sub Pop Records, created some of the most eclectic, uh, strange and gothic without being goth music that ever came out on that label. They've been away for decades and are now back with the incredible EP, Distal. The first half of the conversation uh, solely lies in the uh, sphere of music. And then Dave and I start to break down some, uh, you know, walls, I guess, within the confines of the conversation and get into uh, the meat of what we're both really about. And that's where the magic happens, right around the 40 minute mark, maybe. I'm excited for you to hear this. I think Dave is the coolest guy like one of the coolest I've ever met on this show. I really, really appreciate and enjoy this conversation. I don't want to beleaguer this point, but brilliant human being. If you dig what you're hearing, 
if you're a long-time listener, first-time listener, uh, please like, rate, subscribe, review wherever you listen to podcasts. At the end of this coming October, we will bring you book three of the podcast, the third season. I keep threatening this, but we're really going to change the format dramatically for that third season, that third book. That doesn't mean uh, we're going to stop doing what we do or giving it to you in the manner we do. It's just going to be a little bit more professional, a little bit more produced, a little less indie, I guess. But without further ado, I give to you Dave Clifford of Pleasure Forever on the book of Very, Very Bad Things Podcast. Thank you, everyone.
All right. So how are you this, uh, well, afternoon where mm-hmm. you're at, yeah. correct? Um, pretty good. How are you? I, I'm wonderful. And I'm seeing that you live uh, very similarly to myself <laughs> yeah. with massive amounts of vinyl uh, behind you. Mm-hmm. Um, you're st- you've been collecting since you were pretty young, I would imagine, like myself. Yeah. Um, I guess I got into punk when I was like 12 um, or so. And yeah, I just ever since then buying lots of records yeah it, it's it's sadly uh taken over a majority of my home at this point my wife is starting to get fed up with me <laughs> uh-huh. mm. but um i like that setup where you can see the uh the covers that's only uh that's only for the show uh normally ah. they're they're uh-huh. slotted in um otherwise like if i left them like this my son uh who's i had a Mm. child pretty late in life uh Mm -hmm. my kids four he would be knocking them down and putting his matchbox cars on them if i left them like that (laughs) uh yeah i in the same same situation i've got excuse me we've got a five-year-old and um i he's generally kind of okay about handling records um because he really likes to listen to uh, the model by Craftwork uh, <laughs> and wow. uh, and the Star Wars soundtrack. So uh, we've got those are his two records. Oh wow! So he's he's into uh, orchestral and electronica. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Trying to teach him right, I guess. So it's been legitimately twenty years since the last record by you folks. Mm-hmm. Now, I, as I told you uh, via email, I have played shows with the VSS in the past in my old band. Um, it, it came from the ashes of Angel Hair into the VSS. That's where you come into play. And into Slaves, which becomes the band now. Um, that's a long history right there. Uh, the 20-year gap in between records... Um, how did how do you feel that like kind of changed the way you guys approached this record as opposed to the last two? Hmm. Um, I guess it's uh, well, the conditions kind of made that a uh, necessity because um, <clears throat> all of us live in different cities, and uh, the other two records we we used to practice like five nights a week and would just work on stuff and we had this crazy whiteboard system um where we would we would most of the time just go in and just start playing and whatever kind of came out we you know would go like hey there's that should be that's a good part and we would just write it down on the whiteboard and then we just kind of collect parts and then over time uh go like oh i bet that part could go into that one and we would just kind of like put everything together um in this kind of like you know jigsaw puzzle of sound um and that was a very interesting way of doing stuff i mean tons of bands do that you know it's not like super unique but um to do this it was kind of uh we just started um talking uh to each other and we're just sort of like hey you know you want to um, try exchanging some stuff and just see. <clears throat> we were sort of calling it like an exquisite corpse kind of a project. I was just going to say that exactly yeah. like exquisite corpse. Yeah. Yeah. Um, like I would go and record, make it just do a drum part 
and send it to Andy and then he would just like start putting some uh, piano stuff to it or he would send me a piano thing and I would just put some drums to it. Um, so it's not exactly exquisite corpse because you could you knew what you were adding on to, but um, <clears throat> you know we would still get some stuff. Um, and, and that process was kind of working pretty well. It was kind of interesting, but you know I mean we, we, we made a lot of the stuff out of some limitations. But we, during the process, we were comparing it to the Devil's Pleasures record that we made <clears throat> um, again um, back in uh, 1999, um, uh, where we were all, again, living in different places. Um, and we just planned, like, let's take a week and we'll put together uh, a record. So, you know, we all kind of had ideas and we got together and we just um, practiced for hours and hours and wrote a bunch of stuff and then we went in the studio and recorded it um and you know we don't feel like the results of that were particularly great uh it was just kind of like you know well here's what we got and yeah. we we went with that um <clears throat> but yeah just so for this thing it was more like well we were not doing it to release it for anybody. It was just to kind of like, um, <clears throat> just for fun and uh, share stuff back and forth and see what came out and um, and more just like uh, an exercise. Um, <clears throat> I suppose, yeah, I guess it was just sort of out of our familiarity with each other and our ability to just kind of like bounce off what others were doing. We just um went with it and, and came up with the stuff and then you know after a while we decided okay well we have this stuff maybe why don't we just put it on Bandcamp and just like let it be out there you know people can hear it if they want to hear it and you know like not make a big deal about it and just kind of like have it be you know something yeah um and uh yeah it, kind of oh and then so <clears throat> i've been working with um the guys doing the label solid brass it just started last year and it all just kind of like coalesced in a simple easy way of just kind of like uh jason the guy who started the label we had met way way back when he lived in cleveland um and he was just asking like you know what Andy was up to, what um, Josh was doing, and uh, I said, oh, yeah, well, you know, we recorded some stuff and everything, and so it kind of went from there. Uh, it, it's really interesting, though. Uh, with this record specifically, there's almost a, a sort of uncanny valley about it. There, it, It's very creepy. I mean, and you guys, were, were, you could always sort of nail down a creepy sound, but there's something uh, inherently uh almost like creeping over your left shoulder about this record it's like you know what i mean it's it's mm -hmm. it's, it's it's almost indescribable what i really dug about it though was how there it's so tuneful there's it's so melodic and mellifluous at points but there even at its most beautiful at its most almost orgasmic there's something inherently dark brewing just beneath the surface of it could you kind of speak to that? Um, yeah, I mean, honestly, it's, uh, I don't know what that is either. It's like, 
when each of us makes music in other things, it doesn't really sound like that. I don't, I don't think. Um, I think like the second Red Sparrows record kind of had some of that uh, oh, yeah. darkness to it. Um, and I guess I was just, I don't know, <laughs> some, some sort of a vibe there. Um, but this, uh, for the most part, I think like just there's the combination is sort of like the way, the things that Andy plays, his melodies and um, instrumentation, I think kind of has this ominous sound to it. And, and I mean, I, I don't bring this up to say, you know, like we're like so great or like in any caliber of musicianship or anything like this, but it reminds me of Led Zeppelin, not in like, Hey, we're, you know, or, you know, really great musicians. It reminds me of like how Led Zeppelin was just a blues band, mm -hmm. you know, some studio musicians playing the blues, but it's just, it has this like scariness or some, like there's a, a weird uh, mood to it. And, you know, of course there's Jimmy Page was really into like uh, Crowley and stuff like that. And um, yeah, we're heavy into Crowley and, um, you know, I, uh, none of our, you know, it's, it's not really intentional or, or any sort of a kind of thing. It just, it, it's kind of what comes out, I guess, of the, the combination between us. But it, like, when I listen to it too, I'm just kind of like, why does this sound so, uh, <clears throat> like, creepy or, or whatever? It's like, you know, I mean, I'm, we're all old now. I'm a dad. Uh, and, you know, it's just sort of, it, it's just something that I, I guess is the common. I guess. Yeah, and there, even down to the title of the record, it has like like it's referencing memory, right? Distal, as in um, distal memory. Um, it it kind of makes sense because like when you look at the large swath of time that you folks have been making music together, even with such a, a large break in between, um, a distal memory is a memory. Uh, the way you view you view your past basically like in a very painted in almost rose colored light but in fact this is quite the opposite of that it's got a, that inherent darkness to it that you can't really put your finger on and it's not like you know satanic or you know death metal or whatever but it's the truly creepy music uh, in the atmosphere is always it's not on the nose, you know what I mean? And even lyrically, mm -hmm. you guys aren't really going for that, mm -hmm. but they're unintentionally you, that combination just, uh, it dredges something up almost psychically. It's kind of beautiful and unique. Um, I'm surprised that, you know, it took so long though for you guys to finally reconnect. Um, what was the, uh, what was kind of like the catalyst for the last recorded syllable of time? I think huh. there's there's something very 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 creepy about that song specifically. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I guess probably uh, you know the 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 note structure of it um, is very uh, 
awkward, I, I guess. And it's sort of, um, well, I guess the origin of that song, let's see, what was, uh, yeah, it was Andy had an idea of doing treated piano um, <clears throat> with, uh, he has a piano at home, that's how he did all the uh, piano recordings and um, it, he recorded it with, um, I forget what he put, he was wrapping, like might've just been paper, like this sort of like an old technique um, that was done and you wrap things on that really mutes the strings um, when you when you play it, and the um, you know the, the hammer hit it hits it, and that first you know, the doop, 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 that part that comes in is a piano, and, and but the the strings are are super muted, so they just have that uh, strange plucky sound. Um, he did that first, and I, I heard it, and I just that was actually I guess the first song that we did actually that was like the very beginning of the whole project and i just i heard it and it was just like oh yeah put a a slow heavy drum beat on this it would sound cool um and so we had that part kind of did that and then he was just like oh i came up with the idea with a acoustic guitar playing that melody that then would lead into it and the song just kind of developed from there and so he and i started working on stuff uh first and then after we started going like well this is kind of working we've got some good ideas here why don't we ask josh if he wants to contribute to it also and because you know it's like then we could put it out and call it pleasure forever and um that'd be kind of kind of fun and and the whole kind of the reason for it was you know after uh, a few people that we had known were dying like there was all kinds of stuff going on and i just kept thinking of just like i wonder how everybody's doing because we haven't talked in a really long time um <clears throat> uh, i would see josh every couple of years and see him um sometimes and you know i mean we all have kind of stayed in touch but we weren't like you know connected with each other or anything so um <clears throat> we asked him and he said yeah so you know, he got involved too and then he added parts and then we just sort of like started to piece it all together and edit it i guess that doesn't really answer your question properly but uh, it does though because okay. it, um, yeah. uh, to, to me there was something and i love the whole record i truly do that song really really struck me and you know i, I called it creepiness but there's something more than that it, there's a there's a spiritual kind of um attachment to it almost it, it makes sense that that's the first song you guys had put together because it, it, i think it really is the linchpin of the record mm -hmm. uh, um i want to go back on you though a little bit just to take a little detour since you mm -hmm. are an avid collector like myself and you were 12 when you got into punk rock mm -hmm. kind of like myself mm -hmm. i was right around i was a little younger but um what was the first, like your first love, that first bite that made you seek music out, that first song, first band, first whatever, um, where you could say, okay, this is where the path from just listening to the radio and being happy diverged into what I've become now. What do you think that first moment was? Hmm. Well, I guess there are 
probably kind of a, a couple of those um, for me. It was like, well, you know, growing up in the 70s, it's it was like, uh, I always kind of compared it to um, uh, Crocodile Dundee, the thing like where wherever he turns on the, the TV, it's always I Love Lucy. And it's like, yeah. why do people like this? And for me, it was sort of like the radio, everything I heard on the radio was just like AM gold stuff, which, you know, I learned to appreciate now. But um, back then, it was just like, this is what rock music is? This like Neil Sedaka and, <laughs> um, you know, uh, uh, whatever, you know, whatever, all the stuff that would be on the radio then. And even like, uh, my parents didn't listen to music. They didn't really have uh, much interest in it. And um, so I didn't have any kind of like, anything developing there for me so i guess it really was star wars <laughs> and uh john williams music that was just like well and it, so it's kind of interesting to me that my son just coincidentally i haven't like tried to push anything on him that he is really uh that stuff resonates with him but um that got me really into music and into we had a piano at home that nobody ever played and i just would sit there and and play stuff on it and i enjoyed it um so that was the beginning of that and then it wasn't until i just always thought that rock music was stupid and i just listened to classical music up until a friend of mine uh his older brother came back from england and brought back a sex pistols record and the germs record um it was like what we do a secret 12 inch thing yeah. um and, you know, he said, oh, my brother has this record with this guy singing on it. It's like, I am the Antichrist. I am the Antichrist. <laughs> I was like, oh, really? What is that? Let me, I want to borrow that. And so, um, yeah, I just, uh, I, I borrowed the record. And I was just like, oh, I hate this. This is terrible. <laughs> and, <laughs> but I kept listening to it, you know, because I was just like, what, why is this? why is this music you know it was like something so compelling because i i needed an explanation for it and uh yeah i just kept listening to that and then that was like and i would just sit at home and come home from school and i would draw and listen to those records over and over and over and um that started it so i had to you know it was like sex pistols and germs and black flag and um uh, the decline of Western civilization soundtrack and like all of that stuff. And then I had to kind of like backtrack to go find out what rock music was. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it was kind of, uh, that was the, the turning point, I guess. That makes a lot of sense. And, and when you listen to pleasure forever and, and the approach there is a heavily, it's heavily inflected classical, uh, just laying over the top of what could be construed as, as uh, rock tropes, but it, it's so disjointed, uh, just shot through the prism of rock and roll, that, you know, these different flavors, there's jazz involved in this record, especially. I can, like, there, there's jazz in there, there's classical in there, and then there's orchestral moments, all kind of, like, thrown into the mix. That It makes where you came from specifically make a ton of sense. Um, well, who was your favorite composer? I, th I think I, I think I have an idea of who you would like, but. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, 
all the classical classics. Um, I, I, I mean, you know, of course, Mozart, and I was really, I was into Beethoven and Tchaikovsky um, and Wagner and Strauss and, uh, and just all the um, ones that were normal. You know, my uncle was really into classical music and he would make tapes for me because once he heard I was into it, he was just like, oh, listen to this, listen to this. Um, and uh yeah and he's lived in boston he would record the boston pops with john williams uh conducting because he knew i was into john williams so like I, it was always that um and uh yeah mostly those not anything like too <clears throat> but i did like bombastic big uh classical classical I music i would have had you pegged for a rock enough guy to be honest, uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah. <clears throat> that is my Rachmaninoff is by far my favorite composer. I, I also mm. enjoy I enjoy Wagner, even though there are the uh, ties mm. to the Reich and whatnot. I mean, mm. he he wasn't in <laughs> the concentration camps or anything, but you know it, that dark bombastic, uh, just it's deeply affecting, and I could see how it sort of became metal mm -hmm. in a way, in yeah. a way, you know what I mean? It makes uh, total sense. Uh, I'm, I'm forgetting the Sorgsky. Um, I guess that was really also a really uh, strong one too. I mean, like I loved like night on bald mountain. And so, and I guess also like I saw Fantasia too. And so it's just sort of like, okay, those are the ones that I, I'm going to listen to. And so, you know, cause I was just a kid. It was like, you know, up until about 12 years old, I guess. So um, yeah. It didn't, uh, my taste didn't get too developed as far as uh, classical. I still listened to it later on, but, um, but yeah, I wasn't like super um, sophisticated then. Um, but a, a lot of that, those other musical things, I mean, those are definitely Andy's uh, contributions to stuff because he is a, uh, he's not trained he, i mean he he took piano lessons when he was a kid and uh you know knew how to play that and um but he has just has like you know a musical affinity and um real uh focus on that and he knows um you know music structure and i played guitar when i was like up before i started to play drums and i you know was really into that and learning how to do like um you know, inverting chords, changing notes of chords and uh, all kinds of stuff like that. And once I started getting into that and learning like circle of fifths and learning like real particulars, I lost all interest in guitar. I was just like, this isn't fun. It was kind of like, oh, I'm doing this. Everybody else has already done all this. This, this, this is lame. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So I was kind of like, I, uh, I have always tried to keep the, um, you know the 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 real knowledge of music at a distance which i think is kind of um contradictory to the way that i i like to learn and i you know i like to uh to to know things but for some some reason it's sort of like it takes the emotional um joy out of it for me to to know how how to play you know properly well because it, it becomes too academic then and you know that's the, in my opinion kind of what 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 made punk rock 
truly great was the fact that it wasn't academic and it was a callback to the origins of rock and roll. And most importantly, it was people creating something with, with a disadvantage. You know what I'm saying? That they're limited. And when you're forced to create within limitations, that's when great things really happen because you become inventive and there's no such thing as playing it wrong. Look at the edge from U2, for example. He, he is not a conventionally good guitar player. I would, I would argue that a lot of what he plays is, I can't believe it counts as music, but I love it. Mm-hmm. But like up to a certain point, up until like, you know, the unforgettable fire and, and rattle and hum and all that, like it started to go off the rails for me. But before that, like Joshua Tree was kind of pinnacle. You know what I mean? And what he what he's playing, it's not blues chords. It's not it's not anything identifiable and I think that's what makes it beautiful. You know, yeah. because creating within limitations. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, I, it's interesting you say that because I mean, I, I have talked exactly about him specifically and that whole uh and the thing because uh like if you see that documentary, you know, uh, it might get loud. I don't know if you ever watch it with oh, Jack. Yeah. Um Jimmy Page and both of them are this kind of like, okay, you know, when you see them, the three of them together, it's just like, oh, these guys are just doing the traditional stuff. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with the traditional things. You can be great at the traditional things, but um, I can see the, the creativity and the real um, uniqueness of his playing in that. And also, like in the classic albums thing, where uh, if you've ever seen that, he's talking about writing that record and just like how inventive his uh playing is and um, and i think he's really a, a great guitar player even just because he's relying on effects a lot as the the structure you know i don't see there's anything that makes him not a great guitar player you know but no doing it no yeah. but, but but i'm just speaking strictly from a traditionalist yeah, yeah. point he's not right. He's he's not a uh, uh, Steve Vai, but right, I, right. I don't I don't particularly want to listen to Steve Vai either. There, to me, there's no soul there. I would rather listen to The Edge. I would rather listen to mm. uh, Stevie Ray Vaughan. Than, you know what I mean? So, yeah, sure. Coming from a, a place that's more purely spiritual, emotional, uh, mm. tactile, it's something I can identify with because. I could quite conceivably do something similar myself. Am I ever going to be able to play like, you know, any like Ingve Malmsteen? No, never. Never in a million years. But I probably could get an effects rack and and <laughs> string a couple chords together and make something fun and unique and to me that's the most interesting field of play. I saw you yeah. guys I saw you guys do it with the VSS. It was it was very free. You didn't have, you didn't even adhere to the rules of the scene that we were in and at that time period at all. You ignored it. You just painted on a very, uh, a very porous canvas. Like it was almost a cross between Jackson Pollock and, and, uh, you know, maybe one of the absurdists. <laughs> you, know, mm-hmm. uh, <clears throat> you didn't limit yourselves. And I don't think. You're, I think you're still carrying that spirit into this record. It's it's pretty obvious. Um, are you guys ever going to play out again? 
Well, I'll answer that in a second, but I, I do want to say, like, um, also in uh, mentioning the edge, uh, I really feel like for, even from the beginning, like when I first met Josh and his playing in Angel Hair was like the edge reminded me of that. Whereas kind of like Josh is really uh, he's a great painter of sound and he can he can take effects and he can utilize effects in a really creative way and he's not concerned about uh, josh is an incredible rhythm guitar player too he can um and he always does parts that are very very rhythmic and um and work with with stuff uh and he's just i mean i think he is a genius person like he no doubt about it. i mean he went to you know like uh one of those genius schools from instead of high school and he had he graduated college before he was like 18 or 19 or something you know like so when i met him he was in graduate school um when he was in angel hair uh and he was 20 or 21 something like that um and he, he has that thing and so like i think we've been we're super lucky to have that combination of andy and josh both having this wild creativity but also kind of like a little bit at odds because andy's is um more informed and josh's is more abstract uh and kind of like but josh is great with melody uh and that was something we developed sort of over time in the vss was sort of like we tried to have melody, but the whole more the idea was aggression. Mm -hmm. And then I guess it was just sort of like we got to a point where it's like, there's nothing else we can do with this. And then that's what we did after it. Um, <clears throat> I think the first record was kind of, I was really leaning on an idea of, I, I got, for whatever reason, I just got super into um pop music like like older pop music and just like you know the structures of it how it's all working and it, i guess it was because i was working on a record label and we were uh putting out other stuff and then also i guess it, it was at that time when people were all downloading music you know it's like when napster was really taking off and you could just discover whatever and so i uh for whatever reasons i got really obsessed a lot of older 60s pop music and stuff like that so i was really like you know forcing that issue a bit with everybody to try to make our songs very um <clears throat> with pop structures but having like the the kind of weirdness um and then after that kind of like you know <laughs> let go of that that thing um so so yeah i mean th this stuff is kind of like a little bit more back to our earlier um beginning points of uh you know everyone just kind of like creating things as our natural way and then to answer the question about uh playing live <clears throat> i would really like to um but it doesn't seem there's not much interest from either of the other guys um to play live i think it it seems to be one of those kinds of things that, where <clears throat> it's not quite so satisfying i think andy doesn't isn't really too he doesn't enjoy playing live um probably because i can see it's pretty hard to play like complicated uh 
music, like complicated piano lines and organ at the same time and singing and, and all that, um, you know, at the time it was pretty hard to, to really recognize what a challenge that was because he just kind of like, you know, it was just like, how does he do it? You know, I mean, he could <laughs> do keyboards and sing at the same time and, um, and all of that. But uh, yeah, it's just, uh, I wish we could do some live stuff, but I guess like from being uh, distant places and uh, all, all of those factors, I guess, just make it a little bit too, all right. We tried to do it for the VSS when we were doing a reissue of um, Nervous Circuits. We had shows scheduled and everything, and then it just kind of fell apart. So that, yeah, I recall that. Um, that was, uh, was that when Hydra had reissued it or when Sergeant House got it? Um, Sergeant House, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, because I don't they, actually remember. Yeah. I, because Hydra had had reissued it, um, boy, like I want to say 10 years ago. And then Sergeant, when Sergeant yeah. House, maybe more, yeah. And when Sergeant yeah. House got a hold of it, they packaged both of the records together uh, in one set and put it on. I have all of these, but um, I become very encyclopedic with pressings and stuff. It's ridiculous. I have problems. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm the same. It's okay. I, <laughs> we're, we're in the same. Uh, uh, same mental ward of, <laughs> of records. I become, I become a completist, which is, uh, is, uh, financially, uh, bur a burden because mm -hmm. if, if it, let's say it's something like what's behind uh cave in. Okay. In, until your heart mm -hmm. stops. I have legitimately owned every version of the vinyl. <laughs> wow. Not, oh, not, okay. not every single pressing, but like every, every time something is, is updated, remastered, or, or, or what have you, mm -hmm. I get it. Same with the VSS. Like it just, there are certain bands, especially, uh, that just, I have to have it or I feel weird. <laughs> I know but, you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they're, they're the same thing. There have been a few reissues where I'm just kind of like, I really don't need this. I know that even the new version is not going to sound as good as the original pressing is going to sound. But if, what if I didn't have it? <laughs> well, if you didn't have it, you wouldn't have it. But it, it's it's just yeah. I mean, there's nothing there's nothing that you can do to convince yourself that it's not going to be. You're not going to have that same experience with it that you did, or have a new, completely new experience with it. Um, uh, like you know, I I know some other people that really get into tracking down the different places that they were pressed because there there are very very noticeable differences in the um the plates and the um or or like you know if they were mastered in, in different locations and and stuff so um <clears throat> it makes sense you know it's yeah and it because it, it does become a little scary for me especially <laughs> because i'm the uh, one paying for it all oh uh, yeah yeah i what are what are the chances of you guys like doing this again or is that oh. even something you've discussed or it's just you're taking it as it comes well yeah i mean the original idea was that we would do two eps um because we wrote uh we had kind of enough stuff and we wanted to try to just do it quickly and get it finished and out uh so we picked out 
I guess, four or five songs that we thought like, okay, these are finished enough. Let's just put those out and then we'll finish up the other ones and then we'll put out another EP and we'll have, you know, there'll be this one and that one. And that was kind of how uh, Distal came up was I was just thinking of, I mean, I, I love your uh, your take on it. I think that is really good. I was thinking just a little more simplistically about uh, distal parts of the body, like the furthest from the from the heart. Um, and so where we could do like a, a it could be a, com a, a comparison of um, the musical corpus, I, I guess. And uh, but then it kind of ended up as it was taking so long to get stuff done and all kinds of the whole process like ended up being almost a year and we're just like okay let's just put out these seven songs and we'll call it a day we'll do like this other stuff was just it's not working and um the whole mood was getting kind of everyone was too getting frustrated and bringing up a lot of older um issues and and stuff so it's just kind of like that so i would hope uh sometime it probably would be another long time before uh that can happen but i, I hope not <laughs> i would <laughs> to be able to uh either finish what we've done or try to do a new a different idea or or whatever but uh it was something for me, it was kind of like, I was very relieved and very happy because I felt like we all kind of left off on a awkward note um, 20 years ago. And so it was like nice to get reconnected about all of that stuff. And it was kind of like hoping to, you know, <clears throat> maintain that um, thing. And also to like create musical snapshots of where we are in, in our lives. Uh, and you know whether anybody cares about it or not um it's something for us to uh you know to share amongst ourselves so how solid brass going to approach this as far as um physical copies uh like uh, how, how do you mean um, vinyl like vinyl cassettes cd oh, it's so, uh so far they're kind of just primarily a vinyl label um oh, but great. digital um so yeah there's um this 12 inch and, and that was also an idea of why we kept it to um seven songs was i was kind of like i you know it would be great to be able to make this a 45 because it sounds better yeah 45 uh 12 inch 45 so i think the record sounds um it sounds really good on the vinyl um it was kind of like you know trying to master loud enough that everybody wants it to be at that loudness i think like the digital version is is pretty good but it's just like super crispy and loud but i mean it's just you know that's how a lot of people want it but i think the record is dynamic and has nice nicer low end and all that uh kind of stuff and you know being able to make that a 45 you know it's always <clears throat> of course record nerds talking about records but it's just you know like everybody always wants to be like oh, 180 gram i want 750 gram I, you know it's <laughs> not how thick the record is it's not like that you know it you get much better sound out of a good recording and you know 
45, uh, spread it out over a couple of records, you know, all that, that kind of stuff. And that too was sort of like, uh, you know, do we do splattered vinyl and like all these colors and then like, no, just clear vinyl sounds, clear and black. Those ones sound the best, uh, you know, like I know it's, it's neato to have a, a record that has all, all those colors. But they're not audiophile quality. They're just not. Yeah, they sound shitty. Yep. <laughs> they sound terrible. Really bad. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, we, <clears throat> that was a thing. I was like, I, you know, let's, can we please just have these as clear and black? But um, so we did that. Um, and it's, it's on, on those formats. And I don't know. I mean, I guess like I hope that at some point a, a good format comes along. We could put it on cassette if people wanted it on cassette. Um, whatever but yeah it seems like good enough uh with uh 12 inch and uh digital now you're you're doing work with solid brass as well correct mm -hmm. um now that is what's your involvement with that label um well it's, it because it was started with uh um some old friends it was kind of like an interesting thing like people you know i met jason like years ago uh um and we would kind of run into each other uh over the years and uh we're friendly and justin um the guy he was uh in several bands in chicago and we would stay with him when we go through there and hung out a lot we actually played like his old band thumbnail we the bss played with them a couple of times um on our first tours and uh so you know we knew justin forever and like all of his history uh starting epitonic the like mp3 site stuff and running file 13 records and he worked at touch and go and uh chuck uh red sparrows we did our merch with um chuck's old company and then he's now at Cinderblock, which is a huge merchandise company yep. so, like the the three of those guys starting a label and when they asked me to do press for the label i was just like oh yeah that is, is amazing um and so we just kind of like have developed a a whole thing we're trying to um you know uh, I, I know jason is really invested <laughs> financially and um emotionally in the uh the whole thing and there's some amazing stuff coming out like that we're excited to be able to announce soonish um and yeah i'm just kind of hoping to help let that develop into uh something like it seems to have a lot of great potential and they are all pretty serious about it so i think it's a good thing it, now what what sorts of of bands are is solid brass looking for is it just you know there I, it seems to me like just predicated on the fact that all the people involved come from a similar scene, but it's also people who are very forward thinking. I'm guessing you're not just going to be putting out like grindcore records. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, it, you, some, you're going to go for a more eclectic approach to uh, releasing bands. Like the, it doesn't really matter what style they play. Yeah, pretty much. I think it's kind of like, um, a lot of it is there was like the original concept to be you know more archival and putting out trying to put out some of this stuff that is 
overlooked. But what we've already been seeing too is that like even the music that we all you know loved and came from and everything like has already been picked up by being reissued and stuff like that heroin record over your shoulder you know yes like, uh so many of the records that you can think of there's like why don't we do a great reissue of this thing oh because numero is doing it oh because these guys are trust is doing it or you know so it's just like uh, a lot of that stuff is taken up and then and also it's kind of like if you're only doing reissue stuff it's um it's hard to grow in a um in another way so that also the idea is kind of like putting out like-minded bands that exist today that are putting out interesting stuff and we got some cool um records coming out like this band normans they're sort of like kind of like a girls against Bo uh, uh boys vibe uh kind of like a noise rock thing um they're really good and um uh product band from minneapolis are so awesome they're just like early the early days of like the real like uh new york city kind of punk they sound like television and oh. yeah they're, they're really um cool it and also like a little bit like early pavement um stuff it's it's very uh intellectual but great uh catchy music like they are they're really great um and uh other active older bands like um oh well sorry something i can't announce yet <laughs> so oh, yeah <laughs> you there are a few other um <clears throat> things like um yeah well pines of rome like they got back together again and yeah. stuff. um so yeah it's not just trying to be older stuff but also newer things that have that uh feeling i i suppose that's pretty uh <clears throat> i think that's sorely lacking mm -hmm. because as you as you'd said like within the confines of of you know what's considered in independent music uh everything that was classic or quasi-classic people are it's it's already being archived and reissued repressed um to take the stance of of looking for something that you know maybe could have existed 25 30 35 years ago or or had give you that same feeling and and put I'll shine a light on that i think that's very important because most labels are codified mm -hmm. you know you're, you're never going to see revelation records uh putting out an industrial album you know <laughs> or like you know everybody has their niche and they're comfortable in it and that's fine but mm -hmm. it seems like your approach is it's not a necessarily a niche it's more of a you know how does this make me feel and mm -hmm. i i dig that that's important i think that's i think your the label you guys used to be on sub pop at one point was very much like that yeah uh, um i i can't really speak to what they released now i've kind of lost a lot of touch with it sadly um just mainly because uh i'm approaching 50 and my tastes have certainly changed but um mm. you know there was a time when so that was like the label you'd want to be on you know sub pop mm -hmm. was incredible at one point um yeah. just as sst was before them you know sometimes mm. sometimes you just need to mix things up you know do something <laughs> different and I, I dig that about what you're doing mm. so i only have one pre-written 
question that I ask every person <laughs> that comes on the podcast. Just one. Mm -hmm. um, everything else is off the cuff, if you haven't noticed. Uh, but what I ask everyone is this. Um, what is it that terrifies you on an existential level? I ask this because that's basically what makes us human, what we're terrified of. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I, I would posit that to you. Huh. Well, I, I guess things change, of course. I guess the most terrifying thing to me now, being a parent, is that anything could happen to uh, my son or just to my family. Um, you know, it just it becomes your all-encompassing view. It's like, doesn't matter what happens to me, nothing can happen to this person. Um, I, I guess that's probably the most terrifying thing. But I mean, there are tons of things that are also terrifying. I, I suppose that's maybe a succinct answer. <laughs> See, like, uh, <clears throat> growing up, uh, I was sadly an overthinker from Jump Street. And uh, I used to watch Nova on PBS oh, yeah. when I was a kid. Love, love Nova. I was about uh, approximately my son's age, four, maybe five. And they, it was one of the episodes about, uh, you know, being cartographers of the known universe and, and, and mapping the stars. And they talked about, uh, there's a point basically where there has to be a nothing there has to be a void just blackness no stars no anything um that notion infected me and terrified me and i for some reason the outside of like you know obviously my my wife my children i mean that's very terrifying the idea of anything happening to them but the kernel of of my spirit at that age till until now has just a, an innate fear of oblivion for some reason. <laughs> uh -huh. mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. That, that definitely makes sense. I mean, that's something that for all people is, is sort of the, the idea of science, you know, the, the basis of it. Um, same kind of thing i suppose that maybe for me uh because i have always thought so much about these those things my my dad was a physicist and uh so we would talk about science or you know, things that are like in you know simplified terms because you know he was always um with drink with that kind of thing but i i guess it was like every I always arrived, like when people would talk about the Big Bang and things like that, I, I just like the, the concept of like a, a finite ball seemed uh, absurd to me. I always thought of like um, Leibniz, when I read Leibniz and about the monadology, I was kind of like, well, why couldn't the universe just be a whole bunch of these cells, like cell universes that are all like attached to each other and like it goes on forever and it's almost it's more scary to me to think that everything just goes on forever and ever everything is like bigger and bigger and bigger and you know uh when we can go in on a microscopic level of course we or well thus far we have seen there's everything gets down to like you know uh particle levels but and then it's like, that's the end. Maybe, maybe <laughs> we're going to 
that there that there are, you know, uh, that it goes even smaller and smaller and smaller, and then it could just go bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And it's kind of like, uh, it's a hard thing to wrestle with either nothingness or everythingness. It's like both of them are just like, they're so, uh, so massive that it's like hard to focus on. But I uh, kind of have always found it to be like, I, I think it's inspiring. Um, the same thing I think about kind of often about dying and that, as I've tried to explain to my son, maybe I'm doing it wrong, but it's like that, like we are like a recorder or like, you know, like here's my phone. I have my phone and I can go around and I can make a video and I can like store up a bunch of data. And then once it's broken, it's just this thing that doesn't have any, any more stuff on it. The stuff just goes away. And <clears throat> that is scary to me. The idea of like, I am collecting experiences and I am creating things and stuff and like, you know, in 50 to 100 years, people probably won't know David Bowie. I mean, I guess people know uh, Mozart and Beethoven and, and things like, like that, but I don't think that David Bowie has had like the uh, huge fundamental um, or the benefit of uh, smaller culture uh, or history, like, you know, to be uh, evaluated on uh, on those levels. Um, but yeah, so, you know, I mean, I just like that idea, like, it's probably the same thing, but like just the oblivion of you no longer existing right. um, is, a, is a scary thing that, I mean, that's, that's who we are. The way I look at it, though, and I know I'm probably wrong, but what comforts me in that arena is uh, first law of thermodynamics being uh, energy cannot be created nor destroyed, only redistributed. So we are comprised of energy. You know, with, with electricity does make us function. Where does that electricity eventually go? It goes to ground. Energy is attracted to more energy therefore maybe there's no consciousness to this energy but there is a a, a a part of all of us that is going to collect in the earth and and you know be redistributed somewhere else via volcanic activity whatever so the circle will continue for us we just may not be cognizant of it which hey if that's the way it ends that's the way it ends but there's there's a part of us that's always going to be and and it will be in that <laughs> mm -hmm. right yeah that that is very true i mean there's yeah we are all made up of the stuff that has or as far as we know has always existed or began at some beginning point and it may have come from some other thing around but you know i mean i am uh i love this uh, idea of living at an at the birth of a new uh, um, scientific paradigm that we're watching like something changing um, in real time with the James Webb telescope like making all these new discoveries and proving things to be uh, to be wrong and you know that's a, a very uh, inspiring it was a, a, a real fixation of mine at the beginning of the VSS of this um the right of spring the whole uh 
um, development of stuff of art and culture of the 20th century also tied in with uh, scientific revolutions, the, uh, the way that um, they were, I don't know if you're familiar with Thomas Kuhn, the um, oh, author yeah. of, yeah. Um, that, like, I never would have thought that, you know, would live through um, a, a, a massive upheaval of uh, the way that we um, understand uh, existence. And it, it's really exciting to be, you know, uh, able to see what's happening. Of course, it's probably going to take forever for us, uh, not forever, but it's yeah, probably going to take a while before we... Um, to uh, new understandings, but it's it's very that's something I think is super uh, incredible to live through. Yeah, I mean, we just found out, like, legitimately in the past few years, that gravity w it functions in waves. Mm -hmm. And I, f I forget the gentleman's name. He's an uh, he's a UFO. Uh, he apparently worked at Area Fifty One. His name escapes me, but he said that twenty five years ago that gravity moves in waves, and everyone laughed at him. And now we know that it actually does it's incredible to me to see that you know the conversation around life on other planets has drifted so so much into the 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 out of the realm of conspiracy theory and into the realm of like senate like or congressional hearings like this is this generation um it's both the most terrifying and the most revelatory of, I think, any generation that has come before us. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely might say that. I, I, I do think that a lot of some of that stuff just comes from a, uh, a, a societal uh, necessity for a, a religion where most of the other religious structures have kind of fallen apart that you know the ufo thing like even in the 90s and stuff i was kind of like there's just a real extreme christianity uh undertone to it um and i always thought that that was that kind of bothered me but uh uh but i, I think that there are all kinds of really you know legitimate cool discoveries being made um you know i'm much more of a Carl Sagan, uh, skeptic and, um, uh, you know, I think like, you know, extreme, uh, <laughs> extreme claims require, uh, extreme evidence or whatever, something like that. You know, I, th I think that is, um, pretty important. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. You don't, you don't buy the whole cow, you know, <laughs> and you have mm -hmm. to, you have to, you know, look under the hood before you buy the car. Mm -hmm. But I think my point with that is just the fact that these things are being discussed in more rational terms. Right. Yeah. Um, it, it shows me that the generation coming up, uh, my daughter is in her twenties, like her generation mm -hmm. specifically, mm -hmm. they're delivering on the promise of what we were trying to accomplish back in the eighties and nineties with the idea of like PC culture. Uh, um, and, and not so much as like a, something that's didactic, but more to make it more culturally acceptable to be homosexual, trans, this, that. That's something that I think we were striving for in the 80s and 90s uh, in the microcosm of punk rock, uh, whereas now it is, it's the discussion. It is what mm -hmm. people in that age group are pushing for. I, mm -hmm. think, it, I think that, that that generation 
is going to spawn better leaders than our generation certainly has. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I feel like it's kind of a, a thing like um, Generation X was kind of like the the people who, for us, it was like, let's tear off the cover and we'll we'll show everybody what is wrong with stuff. And it was like, that was our thing. And th that's the thing that other people don't get, you know, like how people get canceled or whatever for just saying something sarcastically or or whatever is because like that was our whole thing was just kind of like yeah but did you know that you know or like i guess you know people used to think that steve albini's lyrics were him talking about all of these things that he did i i just couldn't understand that people didn't understand that it's just like he's doing a character of like this you know showing what is wrong with humanity like showing off the darkest aspects of humanity and like Sarah Silverman and stuff like she, you know, always had these like very racist jokes and like all this kind of stuff, but not to be racist, but to like point out like how uh, inherently racist we are, how um, bad we are. But so, you know, anyway, Generation X, like, like think that was our thing. It's just kind of like, look, you know, yeah, but not doing anything about it. And I think like th that's the great thing of like younger people now are going to like, okay, well, great. You guys talked about look at what is fucked up about stuff <laughs> we're busy trying to like fix it um and, and yeah i mean I, I think it's it's great to see uh a lot of uh a lot of things like proactively happening and people <clears throat> expanding their awareness of of people you know, I, I can think about you know like for my parents generation it was just sort of like exotic people were germans and you know, yeah. <laughs> like it's changed so much, you know, like the world has gotten smaller. We've become more aware of each other and we, and trying to be able to uh, really allow and create diversity um, is, is it always, of course, a challenge, but it's like something that people need to be uh, open to, uh, to, to attempt. But you could see where, <clears throat> I think it really starts with the baby boomers uh, and the hippie movement, mm -hmm. the Vietnam War and, and yeah. civil rights. They informed us as their children, Gen Xers. Mm -hmm. uh, we took it a step further with really like, as you said, ripping the cover off and showing everyone what's wrong with things. Mm -hmm. So the millennials and wh whatever these generations are called thereafter, uh, we parented them. Therefore, they're going to take what we'd imparted to its logical conclusion. So we were on the right track. Our parents mm -hmm. were on the right track. It's just sadly, uh, like changing the zeitgeist and culture of a nation, uh, takes, it takes centuries. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. It's, it's slow, <laughs> slow process, but I mean, yeah, we're intellectually evolving as we are, um, you know, physically evolving. So it's, um, yeah, I just I hope that we don't uh, run out of time in the destruction that we've uh, created also. And, you know, like, but, but I, I do believe that it's sort of like the resilience of, uh, of people um, can be pretty impressive and we can come up with um, things. I'm optimistic and hopeful that, you know, the future is going to be, uh, good <laughs> um, right. or like constructive but 
of course, human history is full of just like the worst atrocities and like um, terrible, uh, terrible failures. <laughs> so, yeah, we're we, we're also kind of at a precipice where it is like you know we're making huge discoveries, but we're also going to have to make some very um, huge sacrifices to be able to uh, move forward too. Yeah, especially considering the fact that in the Atlantic Ocean right now, if you were to go down towards Florida, the water's 90 degrees. Yeah. The, the, yeah. Because the polar ice caps are almost gone, so the exchange of cold and warm water is not occurring any longer. Um, we, need to, we need to wake up fast now. And that change, that, that, that century change in zeitgeist needs to be sped up to about three years. <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah yeah it's yeah it, it's i mean it, it, in a lot of ways it's kind of too late already but uh yeah. just we're just kind of to trying to find a way to mitigate uh the damage really that is is about to happen or continue to happen um and i was just wondering about the other day like looking at the fires in hawaii and just you know that everything is on fire and everything is like just weather disasters but the, still you know people aren't accepting the reality and like really doing something about it um it's it's very very frustrating and it's everyone goes like well it's the baby boomers and they're all running the government and it's like they're not baby boomers that are in the government you're talking about uh you know our generation or the people that are mostly in uh involved with a lot of this stuff and not doing anything about it so yeah that's well on the on the positive side of things mm -hmm. what you've created with this record i think is an adequate soundtrack to <laughs> what, what's occurring mm -hmm. currently because i mean it it's not all doom and gloom but as i'd stated at the beginning of this conversation there is that that something creeping you know just mm -hmm. over your shoulder like it's about to happen it's gonna happen mm -hmm. and um that's what makes it apropos of the time mm -hmm. and you guys did a phenomenal job i am so so enamored of this album and mm -hmm. uh i hope everyone else really allows it to affect them the way i did and i think if anyone has an ear for music and really appreciates nuance they're going to love it <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> ah, well thank you very much that's uh that's great yeah i mean i hope that people will like it i you know we sort of felt that you know it, it's not as like mul multiply layered and as super structured as uh some the the first two records because of the um circumstances of how we were doing it but i think like there is still a lot to it and you know that was you know it, it was like it wasn't intended for anyone else it was intended for us and so i i guess it's just like i hope other people are going to like it but you know we we did it for ourselves so i guess that's what everyone says about art but i don't know i think that you, i do think that you create art so that other people can uh and interpret it and uh you know take it in themselves and in this case, I certainly interpreted it in my own manner. So <laughs> you can only imagine what other people are going to get from it. Um, I can't wait to hear this on vinyl and just put the headphones on, put it on the turntable and experience it that way. I almost feel at a disadvantage because I've only heard it digitally. So 
when I get the record, I'll email you my, uh, my, my thoughts on it. How about that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that would be great. Yeah. I would, I would definitely love to hear what you, uh, what you think of it. Cause it was kind of, I, I, I really, I, I like the way that it sounds that, um, that way it sounds so much more as it should. It, it sounds like the, uh, the first few records that where there's so much more bass information there where, you know, like, of course you can have way more in a digital file, but it's just kind of like, um, it's, it's so, it's just everything, you know, which is how you have to make music these days for it to sound interesting uh, is that it has to be overdriven like that. So, um, yeah. you know, yeah. Comparison to the two formats. I think that's a, a great thing. I hope, um, yeah, I, would love to hear what you think of it. As soon as I, I'll, I'll order one tonight, and uh, I'll let you know as soon as it arrives. I'll, uh, I'll listen to it, and I'll shoot you an email. Okay. Yeah, I, I'll have the guys send one to you. Um, oh, that'd you know, be great. You do that. that yeah, that. send me your address, and can, uh, do that. Send one. I appreciate that very much. Sure. sure no problem. All right. I will let you get back to your uh, afternoon, and... Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> I hope to talk to you again. Yeah. This has been great. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I had a, I had a lot of fun. It's nice to meet you, and uh, uh, thanks again for taking time and, and, and doing it. And uh, Yeah, <laughs> I appreciate it. As I appreciate it as well. Good to see you, Dave. Yeah, you too. Okay. Take care. Okay. Bye. There it is, folks. My discussion with Dave Clifford. As I said in the beginning, I really think that... Uh, this conversation had two parts, the first part being music and the getting to know you thing. And then we very spontaneously shifted gears and got very personal, intensely so. As I said in the beginning, um, Dave's entire discography uh, means a lot to me. I'm a long time fan of what he's done and continues to do, and I hope that they continue to create even more music together as pleasure forever. He's been Dave of Pleasure Forever. I've been Peter. You've been beautiful. And this has been the book of Very, Very Bad Things podcast. Take care of one another. And I will see you again soon.